Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. An international update. We take a look at the global fight to end abortion and the disturbing rise in maternal mortality. Valerie Huber of the Institute for Women's Health explains what needs to be done to improve maternal health in Latin America and around the world. Defending the unborn in Ireland. This month marks the fifth anniversary of the critical setback to the pro-life movement in the Emerald Isle. We have the background. We speak to a pro-life leader there about what's needed to protect the unborn in the historically Catholic country. Exporting abortion overseas. Pro-abortion legislators push to repeal a pro-life provision that stops the flow of taxpayer dollars for abortions overseas. We explain the Helms Amendment. Plus, we speak to Dr. Christina Francis and Dr. Monique Wubenhorst about how the funding of foreign abortions is a grave detriment to countries already dealing with cultural crises. The heated debate around abortion continues in the United States, but how do our laws compare to those of other countries? And what resources do mothers need to ensure healthy pregnancies? According to the Center for Reproductive Rights, only 24 countries do not permit abortion under any circumstances. 75 countries allow death by abortion on request with varying gestational limits, many of which limit the procedure to the first trimester, around 12 weeks. 59 countries have expanded access to abortion since 1994. The United States is a global outlier, since states still have the individual power to allow abortion up to the moment of birth. Maternal mortality rates also vary from region to region. In 2020, the World Health Organization reported that two women died per minute from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. 95% of those deaths occurred in lower and middle-income countries. Valerie Huber of the Institute for Women's Health is an expert on international policies to protect women and families. She joins me now. Valerie, thanks for being here. Talk to me about how all of these laws that allow for abortion pretty much globally affect the health and well-being of women. Well, that's a good place to start because for decades there have been pressure campaigns on these countries to pressure them to liberalize their abortion laws. Many of them have as a result of uh, nonprofit organizations, governments, foundations, et cetera, that are pushing ideology on their countries. What that means for women in those countries, particularly those who are dependent upon foreign assistance, mm -hmm. is that when abortion becomes the overriding definition for women's health, which of course we reject, women and their babies suffer. And you recently published an op-ed in the Washington Examiner about removing obstacles that derail women's health and needs, some of these things that you're alluding to. Talk to me a little bit more about those obstacles and how we can start working to eliminate them. Yeah, I think it begins with an awareness by the United States population and those who care about how the, the U.S. is portrayed ab abroad how we are using our uh, foreign assistance and our international face to be defined by ideology rather than the things that we love about our country, and how priorities are misplaced at the very least, and even worse than that, are 
almost exclusively ideological in terms of pressuring countries to liberalize their laws on abortion mm. and other traditional values. Right. So, so it begin it begins with knowing, but then it be and then it needs to proceed from do to doing, and that means uh, helping Congress understand that there needs to be. Um, transparency in, in foreign assistance, that there are laws in place that you're going to be talking about later in the program that need to be observed. And I'm very concerned that the current administration is sidestepping those mm. and actually funding things that they should not be funding in countries because few people are paying attention. Right, right. And Valerie, even in countries where there are strong pro-life laws, abortions are still happening, just illegally. So what can be done about this blatant defiance of the laws in nations that reject abortion? Yeah, so there, that's a multi-pronged answer, really. First of all, there there needs to be um, real help and assistant to, assistance for women who are in uh, a pregnancy that they didn't intend. Uh, and and that, that can take so, uh, the place of, um, of abortion in many cases, but there needs to be social programs. There also needs to be real assistance at the time they really need it. But in addition to that, this is where the transparency comes in, because oftentimes those abortions are being provided against the law by funded organizations that are in the country uh, doing illegal work with oftentimes funds from governments, from foundations, from philanthropists, from international organizations, mm. they're there illegal, doing illegal work, and that has to stop. Right, right. And Valerie, shifting gears, honing in on one part of the world, I want to talk to you about Latin America. Countries there have some of the strongest pro-life laws, but recently, abortion activist groups have been cropping up. They're making headway in legalizing abortion in some of these areas. I'm thinking Argentina, some states in Mexico. What's your reaction to this? Why do you think this is happening? Well, it's it's because those advocacy groups are are willing to play the long game. They've been working at this for many many years. They are not. Um, they don't really care about telling the truth, uh, and they are posing information as if it is fact, as if it is science based, and they're compelling people to change laws based on erroneous information. The reality, though is that even as those laws change, there's great support for protecting life mm -hmm. among the general population. But here again, there is a need for information, education, and activation. Right. And, and speaking of that momentum, talk to me a little bit about what the pro-life movement looks like in Latin America. We, we saw this spring huge pro-life marches in Peru, Argentina, Mexico, and Ecuador, and they drew thousands of people. So talk to me a little bit more about the movement there and, and also how the church is involved. Well, I'm glad you brought up the churches because there is something beautiful happening in Latin America with the churches, with uh, a particularly Catholic and evangelical churches working together in the protection of life. They realize that lives are on the line and they have to, to do something. And I think that the numbers who are coming to these marches shows that there, there really is um, a, a value 
put on life. And even with laws being changed, I'm hopeful that's, that some of those can be reversed. I think it's also instructive for the United States, though. And, and by that, I mean uh, pro-life laws can be on the books. Supreme Court decisions can be made, mm -hmm. but we need to be wise, we need to be vigilant, and we need to be active. In Latin America, some could say this is too little too late, and in some countries that could be true. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean, though, that, that they should stop and they should look for creative ways. Look at how long it took here in the United States, and the battle is still not over. Right. I think that, I think that Latin America shows us that when activated, there are many who support life, but it has to go beyond a march. It has to go to the laws. It has to go to the judiciary. Um, there has to be combined and, and strategic and tactical measures put in place. Certainly, the marches are important, but they can't stand alone. Right. Valerie, thank you for your insight on this and for all the work that you do, both here and internationally, to defend life. Valerie Huber, founder and president of the Institute for Women's Health. Always great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. Moving across the pond to Europe, May 25th marks the somber fifth anniversary of the Republic of Ireland legalizing abortion. For more than a century, Ireland had some of Europe's strongest pro-life laws, thanks to an amendment in its constitution that protected a mother and her unborn child's equal right to life. Then in 2018, two-thirds of Ireland voted to remove this amendment and allow abortions up to 12 weeks into pregnancy. Despite increasing secularization in Ireland, a majority of its people still identify as Catholic. Helping us unpack this is Neve Ivreen. She is a prominent leader in the pro-life movement in Ireland and director at the Life Institute. Neve, thank you for being here today. Let's just start from the beginning. How did a referendum like this get passed in a traditionally Catholic country in the first place? Well, you know, Prudence, probably very much like abortion gets legalized everywhere. And what you had in Ireland was um, a country which had a constitutional protection for unborn children. And that was, I suppose, something that was fairly unique. And it was said to me by pro-lifers around the world afterwards, you know, that Ireland held the line for a very, very long time, perhaps for 50 or 60 years after most other countries had legalized abortion. And abortion campaigners saw this, you know, they saw that Ireland had this remarkable pro-life record and that in parallel with that, we also had excellent maternal health care, excellent supports for women. And one of Planned Parenthood's lawyers described this this uh, constitutional protection, this ban on abortion, as the jewel in the crown of the global pro-life movement. Wow. And that was how they viewed Ireland, yeah. So you had this enormous concerted effort by international abortion campaigners to smash Ireland's pro-life pro -life laws. You also, unfortunately, had an incredibly biased media here. Really, the media were the mainstay of the Yes campaign, of the abortion campaign, for many years before the referendum. And it all cul culminated, as you pointed out so sadly, five years ago tomorrow, um, in 2018, in the removal of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution and the removal, removal of that protection of the most vulnerable of all our citizens, unborn babies. Thank you so much for pointing out that Ireland did hold the line for so long. That's such an important point. Neve, what has been the abortion rate over these last five years now that abortion has been legalized? How has it impacted your country? Yeah, I actually wrote a piece today for Gripped.ie, which is a new media here in Ireland, seeking to bring some balance back into all of these conversations. And in it, I pointed out that, you know, it gave us no pleasure 
to, to report that five years after repeal of the 8th, everything that the pro-life movement said would happen has happened. So we've seen our abortion rates go through the roof. Mm. You know, there were less than 3,000 women traveling to Britain for abortions before the 8th was repealed. Perhaps, perhaps up to another 1,000 getting abortion pills online. We quickly saw that increase in the first year, this really dreadful figure, 6,666 abortions in the very first year of it being legalized in Ireland. It stayed like that for the next two years. It shot up last year, according to our, our health minister, to eight and a half thousand abortions. So this appalling rise in the number of abortions in Ireland. And we were promised, you know, voters were promised in 2018 not to be concerned about rising abortion rates. They were promised abortion would be rare, that the government would work to keep it rare. As we know happens everywhere, Prudence, that's not what happens when abortion becomes legal. Voters were also told there would be no late-term abortions. And now we're having reports in peer-reviewed journals of doctors saying that performing late-term abortions in Ireland felt like stabbing the baby in the heart. They're talking about having to get sick in the corridors. And you know, so we're seeing all these of these appalling outcomes Babies with Down syndrome, we're told. Now, by the master of the biggest maternity hospital in Ireland, he's saying that 95% of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome in his hospital are being aborted. So these shocking outcomes that we've seen everywhere. This is what happens when abortion is legalised. Um, and these are outcomes that, that should give us pause, I think. We're urging people here in Ireland to rethink abortion, mm. to take into account that these outcomes are everything that the government and the abortion campaign has promised they wouldn't be, and to rethink what's happened to our country and to rethink the sheer scale of the devastation that abortion has, has led to. Mm, yes. And the church in Ireland was deeply impacted by years of ongoing sexual abuse cases with many Catholic priests at the center. And I'm curious, in terms of how that impacted the culture, do you think this undermined the church's position on other social issues like abortion in the eyes of the Irish people? Do you think that had an effect on this constitutional amendment being removed? I do, absolutely. I'm afraid so. And what happened, there was a very clever campaign in the media in the six months running up to when abortion was legalized to bring up again and again some old historical cases and some wrongdoings, mostly historical ones, I have to say, not current wrongdoings in regard to the church, mm. in order to kind of create this mood amongst the Irish people that women had been wronged and that restitution needed to be made for that wrong. And then in parallel with that, abortion campaigners in the media were making the argument, which makes no sense at all, that to legalise abortion would in some way um, restitute some of those histor histor historical wrongs. And of course, you know, we've always pointed out is that abortion is the opposite of compassion. You know, it's, it's the opposite of ever righting any wrong because abortion kills a baby and it harms a mother. And we're never going to empower women. We're certainly never going to create a better culture for mothers and babies by legalizing abortion. And that's precisely that's what's been happening here. You know, we were promised that our, our maternal health care would improve if the eighth was repealed. That's not happening. We're seeing women dying in maternity hospitals here in Ireland in what was traditionally a very, very, very safe place for women to give birth. We're seeing growing numbers of women reporting anxiety and depression in this country. We're seeing growing sexual crime rising. I'm not saying those things are directly related to abortion. Mm. But what I'm saying is that women were promised a better culture, a more progressive better Ireland if the eighth was repealed. That's certainly not what we got. Sure, sure. Neve, is there any hope that this refer referendum, excuse me, could be overturned? 
Well, here's the thing, you know, when after the 8th uh, was repealed, and you, you, you have to remember that the people who, who fought to keep to insert the 8th into the Constitution and then the next generation who fought to keep abortion out were, were devastated. You know, they were absolutely heartbroken. And I think one of the things that really brought light back into the narrative was when Roe v. Wade was overturned by your Supreme Court. You know, after decades of trying, after decades of keeping the path lit, and I think what's really important for the pro-life movement now is primarily to keep the faith. That's the first thing you have to do. You have to keep the faith. Yes. You have to keep the belief alive that people will realize that there is nothing compassionate about abortion and that a truly progressive society would absolutely reject abortion. And one of the ways we, we do that is, of course, to shine a spotlight on these horrific outcomes, to remind people that in terms of this country, there have been 31,000 abortions since the 8th was repealed. Mm. That's the size of a small city in Ireland. You know, we are actually aborting our future. The outcomes are absolutely horrific. We have to keep shining a light on that. And we have to keep making what I think is a very persuasive and persistent argument that women are not best served by abortion, that we can do better for our mothers and babies. Yes. There was a really horrific, I think, insight into the thinking of the government shortly after abortion was legalized, when our health service posted on its website advice for women who would take the abortion pill, and they told them to flush the remains of their baby down the toilet. And I thought it summed up not just the extraordinary disrespect for the unborn child, the absolute lack of regard for that child's right to life, to its dignity, to its human value, but also an absolute lack of respect for women, an absolute lack of regard for them. And I think that, sadly, you know, sadly that every because everything we said would happen in the referendum has now come to light. You, you do see people who voted yes, writing letters, posting on social media, like, this is not what I voted for. This yes. is not the outcome for women that I was told would happen if the eighth was repealed. And I think... You know, in keeping the faith, in keeping the path lit, in persisting in reporting honestly and fairly and in shining an, a spotlight on these outcomes and in demanding better for mothers and babies, that's how we will change the culture. Just as you manage to change it, and you're still working to change it in the U.S. and, and elsewhere, in countries like Poland, in Hungary and elsewhere. That's right. That's right. Well, Neve Uvreen, thank you so much for joining us. Know that we in the pro-life movement in the United States are praying for you in Ireland. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much. Across the English Channel from Ireland, a UK woman with Down syndrome is suing the European Court of Human Rights over what she calls a discriminatory abortion law. 27-year-old Heidi Crowder decided to bring her case to the International European Court after the United Kingdom's Supreme Court refused to hear her case. England allows for abortion up until the moment of birth if the baby has a condition like Down syndrome. Crowder says the law sends a message that people with disabilities are not valued equally. The European court will likely issue a decision sometime this year. If Crowder wins her case, it could impact abortion law in 46 European nations. And to the south of Europe in Vatican City, the heart of our church, thousands gathered to celebrate life on May 20th. Marchers filled the streets of Rome on a cold and rainy day to participate in this year's demonstration for life. Organizer Massimo Gandolfini says that while fighting for the right to life comes first, it's not the only human rights cause his group is concerned with. 
He spoke to the importance of defending the family as a whole, the educational rights of parents, and spoke out against euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. The group is also working to establish a government fund for pregnant women in crisis. And back in North America, in Ottawa, Canada, several thousand people marched on Parliament Hill, praying, singing, and witnessing to life in a country where abortion has been decriminalized and allowed in all circumstances. The march takes place as the Canadian government pushes for more physician-assisted suicide, even approving it for people who have not been diagnosed with a terminal illness. The Archbishop of Toronto, Francis Leo, wrote a message for life in support of the day's events, calling on Catholics to remain devoted to Our Lady in the midst of their work to protect life from the moment of conception to natural death. Finally, to Central America, where secret networks endanger Honduran women by helping them retrieve illegal abortion pills. A new report from the Associated Press details how abortion activists are using code words, aliases, and burner phones to deliver medication abortions to women across the country, from remote mountain villages to urban areas and the Caribbean coast. The deeply religious country completely banned abortion in 1985 and just recently lifted a ban on emergency contraception. Abortion pills are not available in Honduras and must be smuggled in from Mexico. The Guttmacher Institute reports that more than 50,000 illegal abortions take place in the country annually. When we come back, the United States sends millions of dollars each year to foreign countries with the mission of expanding abortion. I speak out and a pro-life medical response to this foreign interest in abortion. Two world travel doctors join us to discuss what they have seen in underserved countries where abortion is pushed on women and girls. They also weigh in on the push for chemical abortions across the globe. All this and more after the break. watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to the show. For this week's Speak Out, let's take a look at the way the United States promotes and funds abortion in other countries. It's no surprise that throughout our nation's recent history, pro-abortion leaders have done what they can to promote deaths by abortion worldwide. In the U.S. Foreign Assistance Act, there's a long-standing provision called the Helms Amendment, in which Congress made it illegal for foreign aid to be used for abortions. But Democrat members of Congress and pro-abortion presidents like Joe Biden pay no heed to this provision. And they're working now to eliminate it so they can continue to export as many abortions as they possibly can with the help of the abortion industry. Democrat Representative Jan Schakowsky was recently joined by 150 of her pro-abortion colleagues in introducing the Abortion is Healthcare Everywhere Act. Senator Cory Booker has introduced the same legislation in the U.S. Senate. If signed into law, this would repeal the Helms Amendment, and it would potentially lead to 19 million fewer unsafe abortions worldwide each year, according to the Guttmacher Institute. But that's code for 19 million abortions that we know the American government is funding each year. 19 million more deaths that the abortion industry can add to their tally. Last year, the Kaiser Family Foundation reported that there are 48 countries throughout the world that receive U.S. dollars and allow for abortion. Most of these countries are in Africa, and the comprehensive sum they receive amounts to about $4.53 billion per year as of 2022. 
this is quite literally blood money. While we can't confirm that all of this money is being used to fund abortion, it's worth noting that Democrats and the abortion lobby want the Helms Amendment repealed to increase this number in order to provide more, quote, reproductive care. It's devastating that deaths by abortion have become one of our nation's most prominent exports. We're joined now by Dr. Christina Francis, CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and Dr. Monique Cairo Wubenhorst, fellow at the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Both of these ladies have traveled around the country and the world, delivering babies and working to improve health care for women in underserved populations. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Wubenhorst, I want to start with you. You just recently returned from Kenya, but have also served in several other countries around the world, the Philippines, South Sudan, Cameroon, just to name a few. So talk to us about your work and what you've observed in these countries in terms of abortion being pushed on women there. Thank you, Prudence, and it's a pleasure and an honor to be here and talk with you. And in my capacity, both having worked for USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development, and as a clinician, what I've seen in country after country is Western governments and pro-abortion non-government organizations attempting to force and strong-arm developing world nations to legalize abortion, even though people in these countries reject abortion emphatically. This is a worldwide phenomenon, and there's enormous pressure to promote abortion, including through indoctrinating OBGYNs even though it's unacceptable culturally. And this is often framed as women's health and reproductive health care. Also, as a clinician, I saw multiple complications from so-called safe abortions. We recognize that <clears throat> no abortion is ever safe for uh, an unborn child. And in fact, there is an African proverb that says in every abortion, one person is killed, another is injured, and a third gets paid. Mm. Wow. And Dr. Francis, you worked in Kenya for an extended period of time delivering babies. Talk to me about your experience there and what you witnessed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you, Prudence, for having me on. And, and you know, I would echo what, what Monique just said in that my experience in Kenya in the three years that I spent there at a rural mission hospital was that most women there, and certainly culturally, they did not want abortion. You know, what I saw was a, a culture who values children so much, who values family, and, um, and who come together to support one another. And so really the idea of ending the life of one's child is, is very antithetical to many uh, African cultures, at least, at least that I have experienced. And what I did see, though, was the true needs of women in Kenya. And they revolve around very, what we would consider very simple things, access to blood products in the case of, of a hemorrhage during delivery, access to good prenatal care where we could identify problems with the pregnancy like preeclampsia early on so that it could be treated those are the interventions that um, that are wanted in that in that culture, but also needed in order to improve health outcomes for women. And the other thing that I saw that that women desperately wanted for their family again were simple things: access to clean water, access to malaria treatments, access to treatments for diarrheal illnesses that still end the lives of children in in low resource countries. And so, but what I saw when I was living there was, as Monique said, this agenda from the West, not from within Kenya, from outside of Kenya, from rich countries, trying to impose their ideological will on the people of Kenya in something that they did not want. Mm. 
devastating. And Dr. Wubenhorst, during the Trump administration, you served as an appointee at the U.S. Agency for International Development, as you mentioned. Can you describe what you witnessed there in terms of the U.S. government exporting abortions, impacting the lives of the people in these foreign nations, as Dr. Francis was just alluding to? Yeah, there's a long history of uh, USAID promoting abortion. In particular, we need to remember that USAID was very much involved in helping to expand and fund UNFPA, the UN Population uh, Fund. And that agency was very involved with China's course of one-child population control program and, in fact, taught uh, many uh, abortionists in China how to do abortions. So, as we, we know, this has been a moral and demographic disaster for China. And then, in addition to that, in years when the United States is not informed, uh, United States administration does not enforce the Mexico City policy. We continue to fund abortion um, by partnering with pro-abortion uh, non-government organizations and right. UN agencies from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Mm. And we have to acknowledge that chemical abortion is a huge part of this problem. Dr. Francis, we know that abortion drugs are pushed as a common method of abortion in these countries. And one of Planned Parenthood's recent reports, they boasted that they train young people in these countries to directly dispense drugs like misoprostol to their very own peers. Your reaction? Well, my reaction is is horror, honestly, on multiple levels. Um, this does not represent good health care for women. It does not represent good health care for their children, certainly. And to think that young people could adequately evaluate another young person to see even if they're going to have major complications from these drugs is just a ridiculous notion. And I would encourage anyone watching this to go look at this document. It really is horrifying that this is being pushed as good healthcare on low-resource countries. I think we'd really need to think about what is the motivation behind that. And they're pushing this in countries where abortion is still illegal, like Kenya and Uganda and Burkina Faso. So they're pushing an illegal practice in a very unsafe manner. And I'll just end my comment with this. When I was looking through that document, um, this one quote stood out to me and it said, we believe our movement is most effective when it is led by the most affected by the change we seek. And I think that that's so key because it just speaks to the fact that the people of Kenya, the people of Uganda, the people of Burkina Faso and many other countries, they are not seeking this abortion agenda. It is the West trying to impose that upon them. And it's going to lead to devastating consequences. Right, right. Thank you for coming through that document and for pointing out all those important Important points, Dr. Francis. Dr. Wubenhorst, we have about a minute left. Before I let both of you ladies go, there are reports that Japan just approved abortion pills to be dispensed in their country for the first time. Japan's birth rate is rapidly declining. They're experiencing a demographic crisis like no other. So why is their solution to double down and push more death by abortion in their country? Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think the situation in Japan is very complex and nuanced. Like everywhere, there's a lot of pressure. But Japanese governments embraced eugenics. We have to remember that Margaret Sanger was very influential because they thought it was overpopulated. There were eugenics laws with forced sterilization and abortions. They were, these were abolished in 1996. Mm. But even with the legalization of abortion, there's still restrictions. Japanese physicians are very cautious about abortion. The people value motherhood, family, and children. There's a Buddhist ceremony mourning children lost to stillbirth abortion and miscarriage. So what I would say is that medical abortion in the current crisis context is paradoxical because of their tensions in the culture that are being reflected. And I think these 
are opportunities for the Japanese pro-life movement to talk about human flourishing, thriving families, and their opposite, which is the culture of death. Hmm. Dr. Christina Francis and Dr. Monique Wubenhorst, thank you so much for your knowledge on all of this. And thanks for all the work that you do. God bless you. Thank you for thank having you. us. God bless. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget, you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. Or send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless. <laughs>